Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is David Emmett and with me all the way from Buenos Aires is Neil Morrison. Hello, Neil. Hi, David. How are you doing? Not so bad. And also with us all the way from Aragon in Spain is Steve English, who's there for the World Superbikes. Hi, guys. Good to be back on the show. Yep. Right. Well, we are gathered today to talk about an extremely eventful uh, Argentinian Grand Prix from Termas de Rio Hondo. Um, just, I mean, it was a bizarre and eventful race. Uh, it went wrong almost uh, almost from the start. We saw Jack Miller line up, um, uh, take the gamble on slicks and... Um, uh, with the track starting to dry out after the uh, after a bit of rain, um, we saw twenty three riders suddenly clear the grid and then have to completely rearrange the uh, the the starting order. Um, there was a long period there when no one actually knew what was going on. Um, finally, they sorted something out and put uh, the entire grid on something like six rows behind Mark Marquez. Um, uh, we saw Mark Marquez stall on the grid. Uh, before the start, then jump off, bump start his bike and wheel it round and um, uh, uh, line up again in the correct place. Then we saw him punished for that with a ride-through penalty. Um, that saw him, well, first of all, lead the race and then do, serve the ride-through penalty and charge through the race. And in the end, we actually, I mean, all drama aside, we actually had a fantastic, uh, we actually had a fantastic race. We had um, uh, a four-way battle at the front with Cal Crutchlow, Joanne Zarco, Alex Rintz, uh, Jack Miller. Um, and in the end, it was all pretty exciting. I mean, Neil, you were there. What was it? What, I mean, the, the atmosphere in, in the press room must have been confused. Yeah. Uh, confused and excited. Yeah, confusion, uh, a bit of disbelief thrown in for good measure. I think if you take one of those incidents that you've mentioned, David, in isolation, that would be enough to uh, to count as a, you know, a dramatic race on its own. But the fact that you had all of those things together, you had, you know, the, the start line incident with the grid, then you had Marquez's kind of day of, well, notorious day, let's say. And then you had, you know, a fantastic four-way fight at the front featuring three satellite riders and uh, a Suzuki uh, as the factory machine. I mean, uh, those are three individually quite exceptional events and, uh, you know, combine them all together. And I think we have one of the most memorable MotoGP race days uh, in a long time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was it was uh, it was basically an entire racing season combined into condensed into a single uh, uh, into a, into a single weekend. I mean, how did you see it, Steve? Well, I'd say I saw it the same way as you, Dave, where you were probably quite happy not to be doing the Eurosport pit lane work on this round, because <laughs> i tell you what, you would have been pretty busy. But uh, it, it's a bit like what Neil said, where, you know, we did get a season of, of incidents condensed into one race, and just any of those incidents would have been a talking point in of, and of itself. But this was a race that had everything. We ended up with a great fight at the front that was probably overshadowed by what happens further back the field. But we have... The perfect example of why MotoGP keeps delivering, where you've got all these great riders and a set of circumstances got thrown up where suddenly there's a spanner in the works where pretty much every rider on the grid and it was just how each of them was dealing with it. So for all of us sitting at home, it's interesting just to be able to see how riders deal with whatever adversity they had coming their way over the weekend. Yeah, I mean, it was... It was it was really quite confusing uh, trying to try to figure out what was uh, what was going on but once they actually got underway it was uh, it was pretty exciting of course all of the well a lot of the headlines turned uh, uh, revolved around mark marquez and his charge around through the field it was an amazing piece of riding um and he was because i was looking at lap times and he was something like what 20 uh, he was 7 seconds uh, uh, well i put together the uh, his 20 uh, 20 fastest laps from the uh, from the 24 laps of the race and he was 7 seconds faster than um, uh, than crutchlow and 23 24 seconds faster than uh, uh, than dovicioso he was just ridiculously fast and you saw that already in practice that he was uh, so much faster but in the on his way through the field he managed to hit almost everyone in front of him and he ended up knocking Valentino Rossi off which did not uh it not help to repair their relationship shall we say it was really bizarre and there was a couple of really bizarre press conferences after afterwards where they uh, where they showed the debriefs the media debriefs uh, they actually streamed the media debriefs live and um, Valentino Rossi said that Mark Marquez is destroying our sport 
So, how do we feel about that? Our, our, our first talking point for this uh, for this podcast: Mark Marquez is destroying our sport. Is Valentino Rossi right? Um, I would say that Valentino Rossi is going way over the mark uh, when he says that Marquez is destroying our sport. Um, you know, I think we're looking at is one of the one of the greatest riders of all time, a guy that can do things on the bike that very few other people in history can do. Um, and he's spectacular to watch, even when he gets it spectacularly wrong, like, you know, occasions in Model 2 when he was a bit too aggressive. It was still always, you know, enthralling viewing. And, uh, you know, Sunday was exactly the same. Now, I think saying he just destroyed our sport is way over the mark. But I think Mark did have a bit of a shocker on Sunday. And I think, you know, that doesn't, um, although we're destroying the sport, is going too far. I think he... Um, he definitely deserves some of the criticism that he's got because it was just a, a bit of an out-of-control display. He lost all that sort of composure that he's worked so hard in recent years uh, to attain, you know, to kind of um, control his more impulsive side, let's say. And um, he, on occasions, just forgot the very basics of uh, racing etiquette, that when you pass people, you don't automatically have to barge into the side of them. Yeah, it seems to me they didn't seem he didn't really need to be actually doing any of that. He didn't need to be passing like that just because he was so. Uh, I mean, he was so much faster than everyone else um, that he could have passed them anywhere. Could have passed them at leisure and still, uh, you know, salvaged a, a decent result with uh, in relative comfort. Steve, what about you? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that he destroyed Rossi's race, but he didn't destroy the sport. <laughs> like it, it, it was one of those examples where one thing went wrong for Mark, and then suddenly it all snowballs. And it's a bit like when you're playing poker and you lose one hand and suddenly it's good money going after bad and Mark just went full tilt in the middle of that race where suddenly he's panicking, he's stressed, he's he sees that he's been the fastest man all weekend, he sees that he's been, as you said Dave, seven seconds faster than anyone else. This was a race that was this was a race that was won before it, it was started on qualifying. We all thought for sure no one's touching Mark. Even qualifying on the second row, we thought like he's grand, he's still gonna be able to come through. And then suddenly, because one thing goes wrong, a second thing goes wrong, third thing, gets the ride through, three penalties during the race. And it was just, as Neil said, trying to control all those urges that he's had for the last 10 years, his whole career really in the Grand Prix classes. He's done such a good job in recent years of doing that, but he ended up just full tilt in this race and couldn't control them. And that was what we saw from Mark, is that he's still... At the end of the day, he's still a 25-year-old every now and then, and this was one example where he just couldn't control himself. Yeah, yeah, I, I would absolutely have to agree with that. I mean, he was... I'm tempted to say he went to pieces, but he didn't really went to... I mean, how can you call actually lapping something, lapping the uh, uh, lapping the race, or, you know, lapping the circuit at that speed, so much faster than anywhere else, going to pieces? It was just that his racecraft just dissolved and he turned into um, the hooligan that he used to be. Yeah, and that's the thing, you know, it was just every move that he made was just on that limit where, you know, there are the ones with the leash, whether it was Rossi, whether it was the Mark VDS riders, there was just so many examples where he just wasn't given the respect that he should give to the other riders. And each of those instances is fine in in itself, but whenever there's four or five of them through a race, it's just uh, action needs to be taken. Yeah, at first, I mean, it looked like the, the clear incidents were with uh, with Espargaro and Rossi at turn 13. Um, but when you go back and look through the race and listen to some of what other riders were saying, you realise that he had real close moments with Morbidelli, with uh, Luti as well, I think. Uh, I think he made contact with Bradley Smith. I watched the race again and saw that he came so close to uh, touching the front tyre of uh, Tito Robat when he passed him. Um, and yeah, I think you have to say that what... I mean, there was a lot of kind of uh, overblown rhetoric thrown around on Sunday evening, especially from uh, the Yamaha camp. Um, but you have to say that Lynn Jarvis was partly right when he said that there was a lack of respect there because um, although we like close racing, although we occasionally like to see a bit of barging around um, whenever riders are fighting one another on track, I think to just, you know, skittle into guys and show no sort of... Um, yeah, no sort of respect for guys that are running their own race and just barging through. I think that 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 was a lack of respect. Um, and uh, you know, in my eyes, he was quite fortunate to um, to escape um, a, a more severe penalty sooner than he actually did. Dave, just uh, looking at Mark over the last say five years in MotoGP, just uh, you look at the amount of opportunities where he's had where he's 
gone into a corner too hot, stands the bike up and just manages to avoid someone. And he's always said, I never crashed into them, so it was okay. I knew where the bike was. I knew where I was relative to everyone else. Do you think was this just one of those times where maybe all those moments combined over the last few years that have been near misses, just where they all sort of came together into one race as well? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair point. And I think the other thing is um, he is always, uh, I mean, you see it in his riding style. Uh, You you see it in the way that he rides the bike. He's always always sort of skirting disaster. He's he's basically got sort of, you know, all 10 toes and a little bit of the ball of his feet over the uh, over the edge of the cliff. Um, And is never, he's never quite sort of wrong, if you like. He's never, he's never quite dirty um his his passes are all just uh just about le- sort of barely legal if you like um but this was a time when he was panicked he was uh, uh rushing he just lost his cool and uh, he was just full of adrenaline and as a consequence he's he was you know he got a little bit more than just his toes over the edge and he was really starting to push towards being uh properly dangerous i mean i um there were a few times, I'm not sure how many times he was actually genuinely dangerous, but he certainly wasn't, um, uh, it, it was certainly well beyond the limits of the acceptable. And he was, uh, he was, it, it was absolutely right that he got, uh, that he got punished. Yeah, it, it seemed there was a little bit of arrogance that snuck into it as well. It, it, it soon became a kind of, uh, I don't know, an, you know, for him, it was almost like an exhibition on like, look what I can do, look how stupid I can make you all look. Um, you know, I've been penalised. I've had a ride through the penalty. I've had to drop back a couple of places. Yeah, I'm still going to easily beat uh, the guys that I'm fighting for the championship with, like uh, Rossi, like Davizioso. It, it did seem more that he was trying to prove a point than just, um, you know, ex- get the best result that he possibly could on that occasion. It, it seemed like there was um, a bit of psychological, um, you know, warfare there where he was trying to demoralise everyone. And yeah, I know some of the best riders in the world, they, you know, they resort to a bit of psychological warfare. They do a little bit of mind games. I think here Mark was just like, okay, trying to demoralize everyone and trying to just make it absolutely clear just how superior he was. Um, but the thing is, as you said before, David, he could have done that without riding into everyone. Um, it wasn't, yeah. that wasn't absolutely necessary. Yeah, I think if he had wanted to actually demoralise people, uh, he could have done it, um, it would have been even more demoralising done it if he'd made lots and lots of clean passes on people instead of barging everyone out of the way. I think, I mean, to me, it, it was more panic rather than anything else. I think it was more that he had, I mean, you know, in FP4, he was, what, 1.1 seconds faster than than Danny Pedrosa, uh, a lap. And that was, I mean, it was just mental. He was so much faster than, uh, than everyone else. So I think it was more that he had this plan, he had this idea in his head that... Um, you know, okay, right, this is great. Um, I can have a good race in Argentina. Then we go to Austin where I'm going to win. Uh, and then we get back to Europe and I'm going to be in a really comfortable re- situation for the um, for the championship. And when the plan sort of fell apart, um, it really, it, he, he just panics. He just panics into into his old default sort of teenager mode of, of, of playing demolition derby. Um, it actually reminded me a lot of um, uh, Philippard in two thousand and three, uh, Valentino Rossi. It was it was similar circumstances to an extent in that uh, what we saw in two thousand and three, Philip Island, when Valentino Rossi was given a uh, a ten second penalty for overtaking under a ye- uh, yellow flags, is all of a sudden he was seven tenths of a lap faster than he had been once he got the penalty. And he pulled away and won won the race by fifteen seconds, more than compensating for uh, more than compensating for the penalty he was being. He was just basically demonstrating how much faster he really was than everyone else. But of course, you know, Rossi was at the front, and so he didn't have to go around barging other people off to to get past them. That was the um, uh, but that was that was the real difference there. But um, do do we, do we also think that Valentin Rossi is is using this to get a dig in and, and crank up the psychological warfare absolutely absolutely um there was some sense to some of the things that he said i mean i, I you know i thought he had a very valid point when he said that you know mark could have waited a couple of corners because rossi admitted he was slow he was one second a lap slower than mark has at that point in the race and you know he could have waited but you know there was a sort of glee in his dealing with the media uh, on sunday night um, you know, you could really tell that he'd he kind of been waiting almost to have a, a sort of excuse to just let it all out, let all that seething resentment that's built up over the last two or three years and, and really stick it to him. 
Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's 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 it suits Rossi, it suits Yamaha to, to, you know, sort of knock Marquez down after, you know, a couple of years after the whole Sapan clash. Um, I think Mark's image, um, uh, you know, a lot of ke- a lot of good came out of his uh, championship battle with Davizioso last year. You know, they both acted very gentlemanly, had a lot of respect throughout. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, Mark is looking incredibly strong, like we've already mentioned. This weekend, he was the second faster than guys in free practice sessions alone. This is possibly the most competitive MotoGP field, uh, the tightest MotoGP field there's ever been. So that sort of advantage is quite ominous for, you know, the races to follow. And, um, well, any sort of means of, uh, of destabilizing Mark, I think, um, you know, are being, are being exercised. What about you, Steve? What do you think? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that uh, the one thing that Rossi loves more than winning is being able to get under someone's skin. And this is a great opportunity to be able to do that at the end of the day. He's been the one that's completely wronged in this one. No one's going to say that, uh, you know, there's no, there's no margin for doubt in this. You know, Mark made a mistake and Mark takes out Rossi. It's not like Sepang where, you know, there's an awful lot of other factors going into it. This is an opportunity where you're 100% in the right. You know that everyone's going to run whatever you say and they also, you know, know that pretty much everyone's going to agree with it as well. So this is an opportunity to completely get under the skin of Marquez. He does that. And uh, obviously enough, everyone else. Yamaha, whoever else, the other riders, they all jump in and support because they've been hit by Mark in this race. So suddenly one man's opinion becomes shared by 20 and you're able to use that to build up a bit of momentum against Mark. And as Neil said, Mark went to Argentina, seen how fast he was, knowing that he'll go to Cota as a prohibitive favourite. You can't bet on, on him in Cota because he's that much of an odds-on man. So... This was a real opportunity for Mark to to put his stamp of authority on the championship and instead all that's happened is you've got the entire grid basically rounding up on him and he has to face questions all the way through the weekend in Coda about this weekend rather than focusing on the on the task at hand in Texas. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think it's um uh, uh Valentino just went all in because I mean, he's completely right. It was it was completely unjust what happened to him. Um but um, uh, Valentino Rossi is absolutely um, uh, making every possible opportunity uh, uh, of it, taking every, every advantage of it to, to really uh, give Mark a kicking in the media and make sure the media keeps on giving him a kicking to, um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, ruin him, try and mess up the rest of his season. Yeah, and he took every advantage possible except for accepting Mark's handshake at the end of the race. And it was obviously a similar incident to what happened at Heret with Stoner those years ago. And this was an opportunity where Rossi could have gone out, been the bigger man, and again, won himself probably a few more bits of credit from the media. And instead, he's got his minders and the team pushing Mark away and, and not coming in to accept the apology. That was the only thing that Rossi did wrong on Sunday, where he really could have done something to be able to probably score a few cheap points with the media as well in that regard. Yeah, and did he really criticise, was I just hearing things, or did he really criticise Mark for coming to his garage in front of the TV cameras to apologise, rather than doing it in private, when, uh, you know, we all have decent memories, um, <laughs> we all kind of remember what happened in the aftermath of uh, arrest 2011, uh, wasn't he doing exactly what Mark did in that situation? Oh yeah, I mean there was uh, a lot of people pointed out that um, uh, a lot of the things that Mark were doing were um, uh, echoes of um, uh, things Valentino has done in the past, and certainly there was a. Um, uh, I mean, there is this narrative that Mark is basically just repeating, um, uh, repeating, repeating everything which um, Valentino has done, and this this just seems like another sort of peg on the, uh, a little another little box to tick. Um, uh, you know, going going to the garage to uh, to apologise, but um, uh, perhaps Valentino didn't didn't fancy that one. Right on to the second talking point. Um, all of this uh, controversy really started um, with the absolute chaos. Um, now, I mean, it's hard to actually pin blame on the on the uh, uh, on uh, on who is to blame for the uh, for the chaos at the start. But uh, race direction have to have a, a certain stay in this. I mean, 
did race did race direction handle this correctly? I mean, we have first of all, there's the confusion over the over the starting procedure where um, Jack Miller is sitting on the grid. Twenty three riders leave the grid um, uh, ahead of the uh, or after the sighting lap. They all uh, leave, and which would have meant they would have had to start the warm up lap from from pit lane. Um, and all line up uh, uh, at the back of the grid. But when there's only one rider on the grid, where is the back of the grid? Um, then we had Mark Marquez stalling his bike and jumping off the bike, riding his uh, riding the bike backwards. We saw a couple of Urter officials sort of running up and down pit lane or running up and down the, 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 the grid after Mark jumped on the bike. Then there was all of the penalties and all the rest of it. It was it was not a great day for a race direction as far as I could see. Yeah, there was definitely um, an unusual amount of spotlight uh, on them. It wasn't just, as you said, they have one situation which, which shone the spotlight on their kind of um, decision-making uh, in a very high-pressure situation, um, on-the-spot decision-making, but, uh, but there were several. Um, and, I mean, in the heat of the moment, I think maybe they could look back and think that um, there was one or two things that could have been done slightly differently. Um, I think with the whole with the start line fiasco, I mean, it definitely it didn't look it didn't look good. It didn't look professional. Um, you know, having to delay the start, and especially, I think a lot of the the complaints that were being lodged were, were justified, and those surrounded the fact that Jack had gambled correctly with slick tires, and in some respects he was being penalised for his correct decision, um, but. It was an absolutely an exceptional set of circumstances. I mean, when do you have 23 riders leaving the grid? Um, race direction knew that should they follow the strict letter of the law, they would all, um, all those 23 riders would start the warm up lap from pit lane and therefore they would take up a place on the back of the grid. Now, normally it's easy enough, you just take up a place behind the last row. But when there is no last row and the highest place on the grid is the front row of the grid, then there's going to be yeah. absolute confusion. So I think it made sense in one aspect, although it didn't look great, it did make sense for race direction to take a deep breath, call, uh, I think it was a 20 minute delay, while they could review the grid uh, and draw up a new one. Um, and I was in correspondence with the race director, Mike Webb, after the race, um, after the race weekend. And that, that's, that's um, you know, he said that that's exactly the reason why they did it, because no one knew where to line up in the grid whenever... Um, whenever you do your out lap, basically your number is on your grid place. But when you do your warm up lap, that's obviously taken away. So riders will complete the warm up lap and wouldn't know where to start. Um, so, yeah, so I think there was some sense in the fact that they delayed it. It didn't look great, but I can see exactly where they're coming from. Yeah, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I, I agree. I think uh, the way that they handled that was was exactly right because, I mean, you ended up with um, the situation you would have ended up with anyway, and it was such a bizarre. I mean, you know, like you say, 23 riders, all except for for Jack, uh, for Jack Miller, but you have to feel sorry for Jack Miller because he gambled correctly. Yeah, and I think like the biggest problem with it is just the optics of it. It looks bad whenever you see all of the team managers down on down on the grid, surrounded Mike Webb and every Dorna efficient imaginable on the grid, basically trying to explain the situation. It looks like no one really has a has a plan. And the problem with it is, is all the all the issues that we've seen in the past, we all thought that they'd come to a head and would lead us to a situation where we could avoid something like this, whether it was Saxon Ring 2014, whether it was Silverstone in 2015 or 2016, whenever it started to rain on the on the siding lap, I think, and we had to 15. abort the start in 15, and we had to um, wait that out. And I remember a lot of the riders at the time, I remember Crutchlow saying that if one rider goes to the grid with the right tyres and they've gone through the siding lap and they're happy to go to the grid, we should start the race, everyone has to come into the pits. This was obviously slightly different to that because we hadn't even started the sighting lap. But it's one of those situations where you're sitting at home and it's 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 impossible for a fan at home to follow it. Like we were in our WhatsApp group, all of us texting, sort of wondering what's gonna happen. And you know, it's whenever there's that kind of confusion that it it just it it it's the optics of it more than anything else. Because at the end of the day, if you're on a wet track that's drying or a dry track that's wetting, it's very different situation because if you're on wet tires it's not a dangerous tire to be on it's just a slow tire to be on if you're on slick tires on a wet track it's a dangerous situation to be in so this is one of those situations where 
you've got a lot of different circumstances coming to a fore at once. And, you know, as Neil said, you're probably right. Mike Webb did make the right decision to be able just to delay the start, take a breath, explain the situation, and then come to a solution. The problem with it is the solution they came to looked haphazard. It looked like there wasn't anything in the rule book to be able to say, this is, this is what we're going to do if this situation arises. So again, the optics of that, they look bad for MotoGP, but we managed to get through it and have a great race. And as long as there's a good race at the end of it, that's what the headline's going to be, even though this yeah. is a talking point that whether it's the safety commission, whether it's the Grand Prix commission, they need to come up with a better solution long-term for the future. But again, it's precedence that sets the rules. This now gives us an example to work beyond to find a better solution. I think one of the things that could have been done a bit better is just to communicate why they did that at the time. Um, we heard that there was a delay, but we didn't know why there was a delay. Was it because they were rewriting the rule book? Was it because they had to redraw the grid? Um, was it because they feared the safety of everyone leaving the pit lane at the same time? I think a lot could have been, a lot of the confusion could have been solved had Mike Webb been made available to comment at some point during that. Now, obviously he's, he's, you know, frantically trying to redraw the grid and has a lot of things to do. But even if it's just a 30 second confirmation from a, you know, some official that can then relay that to the TV crews and pass that on to the audience. I mean, I think that, you know, once the explanation comes out, you think, okay, well, yeah, there is, I guess, a bit of reason in that. I, I can understand it. But when everything's just happening, happening, appearing so haphazard in front of you, um, then, you know, you're opening yourself up for, you know, a, a wide range of criticism. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. It is about the optics, and in fact, one of the things that I've said to uh, uh, to people at Urter and Race Direction is that they need um they they really need a press officer. They need someone who can answer all of these questions uh, uh, for them because you know the bigger the sport gets, the more popular it is, uh, the more difficult it is for um for them to explain their uh, or the more also the most important it becomes for them to explain what's actually going on. Uh, and it was definitely a failure of communication because it seemed like they actually knew what they were doing they had a plan and they they understood what needed to be done but it's just that there was no communicating it to the general public and nowadays it's the you know the it's the general public which pays the bills and it's the general public which really needs um needs that kind of information if it's not to be um uh you know if it's not to be if we're not to keep on uh this way yeah yeah absolutely uh, um, the next thing, and I think for me the biggest problem was um, Mark Marquez, the way that uh, Mark Marquez was uh, ha uh, handled on the grid. Because he arrived, he stole his bike. I, I watched the, the the race from the onboard, and you see him as he pulls up to his um, uh, grid slot, his his engine stalls, and he does exactly the right thing. He puts his hand up, but he only has his hand up um, for a second before he jumps off and tries to bump start it. Uh, and from there, it all went sort of a little bit, um, uh, a little bit peak tong, as we like to say. <laughs> yeah, and I think this probably was a consequence of the, you know, the initial delay. Had this, had this occurred at the normal starting time, at the normal point in the grid, um, I think the officials would have been a little more um, authoritative, authoritative with um, with their dealings with Mark. In that, you know, by the letter of the law, he should have been taken off the grid and made the start from pit lane um yeah as it was you know there was already so much tension um because of this 20 minute delay and i think you know there seemed to be just uh get this race started we have to start it but you know i think marquez was uh you know w what he did there's no way that he could he could protest against that penalty because he didn't just um you know he didn't just disobey basically what the other official that came over to him said no Marquez's defence. I did watch the, the kind of the, the replay of the race, and at one point you can see race director Danny Aldridge motioning to the order official with his thumb up. Now, what that means, you know, we, we don't really know exactly. Didn't get the chance to speak to Danny to, to clarify what uh, what that meant. But Marquez took that as a sign that he was okay to, to go back to his grid position. But to, to do it, that means that he did to, to ride backwards on the grid. I mean, you know, there's there's no way you can get away with that. Um, you know, and that in itself could have warranted a disqualification, really. Yeah, like the thing with it is, it is a live track once you roll down pit lane. So he did ride, ride the wrong, wrong way around the circuit. We've seen Bradley Smith in Moto 2 at Silverstone, and I think it was 2012, get uh, disqualified from qualifying for that. You know, I think when this happened, the first thing that came to my mind was that's a clear black flag. And then by virtue of the fact that 
he doesn't go to pit lane. I don't know. Maybe we'll. Maybe there was a gap in pit lane. That's where the official was trying to point him towards because it was quicker than going up to the end of pit lane. Like we don't know. But Mark just took it into his own hands to do what he thought was right. And we, we've, like at the end of the day, all these lads have been racing for long enough. We've all been watching racing long enough to know what the procedure is. And this was a. This was just an example of you know a rider just panicking, trying to do everything he can to get to a starting spot. But it was clear from the moment that he he bumps the bike and turns the wrong way down the circuit that he was going to get a penalty of some sort, whether it was a ride through, whether it was a black flag. That was the only thing that was up for interpretation. Yeah, I mean, the the point is, as soon as he uh, puts his hand back down again and, and and gets his gets off the bike, that's when he uh, that's when he ends the penalty. I mean, that's basically the rules say that you stay on the bike and you keep your hand up. Uh, at that moment, that's when he uh, when he deserves the penalty. Now, the, the unfortunately, the rules aren't very clear about what the penalty is or what the procedure is. Um, but that was certainly you know he, he certainly should have been uh, penalised there. And really, what should have happened is that uh, the race director Mike Webb should have. Um, uh, should have again delayed the race again, stopped the race, um, uh, let them uh, let them all line up and start Marcus from uh, from pit lane, but he didn't. There's actually there's a good rule in Formula One that says if someone stalls on the grid, instead of having to delay the start, you just put the green lights on up on the gantry, you do another formation lap, you come back two minutes later, the race starts. There's no real delay, a lap's taken off the board. So for TV and things like that, you still end up with pretty much a seamless run. Having that kind of a rule in MotoGP wouldn't be a bad idea for this kind of instance, where suddenly you're able just to get the grid to go, put Mark into pit lane, we can start the race. Suddenly he starts from pit lane. He's still going to be angry with himself, but is he going to still be, you know, pinballing riders around the grid as he was after getting his ride through penalty? So it's one of those situations where maybe there's another solution that we should look into. Yeah, I mean, completely agree. That sounds like a fantastic... I mean, I don't watch F1, so I don't know, but that sounds exact, like exactly what needed to be done, that there would be, you know, one more site or one more warm-up lap and uh, Mark starts from uh, pit lane. But, um, I mean, you have to feel a bit sorry for um, uh, Danny Aldrich and Tony from Ursa who... Um, have to leap onto the onto a live track with the red start lights on with what what is it 24 bikes all ready to go all of these young men full of adrenaline ready to go racing there is the most it's the most adrenaline filled moment of the entire uh, uh, weekend so yeah i mean you have to be a brave uh, i'm certainly not brave enough to leap in front of all of those motorbikes yeah it's like what's the most dangerous job in the world that's putting out that first cone on the m1 in the middle of the afternoon <laughs> so i definitely wouldn't be brave enough for it <laughs> yes right okay um one more thing i mean uh our last point our last talking point um uh, when everyone arrived for the uh for the press conference, the first thing that Cal Crutchlow did, winner of the race, was have a go at the media for not uh, uh, for not turning up. Um, where are the Where are the media? <laughs> good for Neil. Good for Neil. Neil turned up. Yeah, a few. Much of there weren't really all that many uh, journalists there, just because it's so expensive to get out there, is it, Neil? Yeah, but I mean, you know, you look at the other press conferences, and uh, there was still enough journalists there to, to fill it twice over. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but um, is um, it, it, is Cal right? I mean, uh, obviously, it's a big deal when uh, uh, when Mark knocks Valentino off, and when there's when there is so, I mean, just so much happened uh, that whole weekend. Um, is Cal right to be annoyed that they're not talking about uh, you know the podium? Um, I guess, yeah, I guess he is. Yeah, sure. I mean. Um yeah, it was uh, it was a fantastic race. It wasn't just that he he won it. It was he was right in saying that they had all put on a fantastic show with four riders scrapping it out, um, real intense battle, um, new names at the front of the class, three satellite riders there. Um, it was yeah, it was it was definitely a great show. But at the same time, realistically, you must know that uh, the majority of the media there were Spanish and Italians, the ones that made the trips uh, the trip from Europe anyway. And, uh, well, you know, who's the biggest rider in Spain at the moment? Mark Marquez, who's the biggest rider in Italy? Valentino Rossi, both of them have come together. We all know, you know, the kind of added publicity, for better or worse, that the sport got after 2015 and all that kind of went with that. Um, you know, it's, is it, is it the right thing? No, but is it, um, you know, the kind of the, the pragmatic reality of, uh, of the way journalism is these days? 
yes, I would say it is. So, yeah, I think Cal was uh, was absolutely justified to, to be a bit pissed off. Um, and, you know, in his eyes, I guess you can see why I was disrespectful. But, um, yeah, as journalists, we need to get those hits, man, you know, and uh, <laughs> when, when someone... <laughs> Something like this happens, you know. You, you do real. You do know that um, that it's going to, you know, uh, increase. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's going to put a put a magnifying glass on everything that's happened that weekend in ter- in terms of you know the, the controversy. Yeah, it's a bit of a strange one as well because, like, at the end of the day, if an English writer wins, a British writer wins. There's only a couple of journalists that have to be there. You were there, Neil. Simon Patterson was there from MCN. That's the the British contingent for this round because. You don't have everyone going from Europe for this round. I remember when I went to Argentina, I was the only English-speaking journalist in Argentina that weekend. So, and you don't even really speak English that well. Well, that's true. (laughs) You know, it is a second language, but it's that thing of like for all of us, you have to go where your publications want you to be. You had to be there because a British writer wins. But if in two weeks' time in Coda there isn't a British writer on the podium, Cal's debrief time usually clashes with. The press conference as well. He's usually what an hour after the race finishes, fifty minutes after the race finishes. So round about the same time the press conference starts. If you get up and leave his debrief in Coda because you want to go to the press conference, that's also going to set off a reaction with him. So it is that balance between what you have to do and what you have to get to. And for the Spanish and Italian journals, especially for the Italians, there isn't an Italian writer on the podium. So maybe that press conference isn't that important for them. You know, and it's just balancing it out between where you have to be and where you can be. Yeah, I mean, well, of course, the other thing is that uh, you don't necessarily have to be in the press conference because Dorner actually put the uh, uh, put the MotoGP.com press conference on their website. So you can go back and watch it afterwards, which I know a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, uh, and the other thing is, I mean, it, it is fair to say it's not just the clicks, it's also the fans. I mean, let's face it, that all the questions I got on Sunday night after the race uh, on Twitter were not about um, uh, whether I thought, you know, uh, Alex Rince had a fair shot at taking second. Uh, they were all about uh, you know uh, the the start the you know the grid uh, whether Mark should have been disqualified the Rossi's reaction it was all about those and not about um, and not about anything else yeah no no jokes from Neil on this one but I did have to go in to get my hair cut this week and uh, <laughs> like the first thing that the barber asked me was like do you see the race from Argentina what was that with Rossi and Marquez and my barber doesn't watch racing but he knew that it had happened. He wasn't asking me a question about, oh, do you see Crutchlow's leading the world championship? That, that isn't, yeah. that isn't the story for the vast majority of people. So, you know, if a guy that has no interest in the sport is suddenly asking me about something like this, that's where you have to go. Yeah, I mean, it also made uh, the uh, Dutch sports uh, uh, sport news, the, the you know the TV sport news, which is you know what uh, an hour or something on a Sunday night. And normally, after a MotoGP race, you don't get anything at all, um, except in these sort of cases where we got sort of you know three four minutes of um, of, of debate and discussion. So yeah, it was a uh, it was much more of a bigger deal than uh, than normal, but. I mean, it doesn't subtract from the fact that this was an absolutely fantastic race. And, you know, it's just the the stuff at the front. Crutchlow's race was absolutely outstanding. He raced with enormous patience, which is, uh, I think, to me, the most impressive thing. Alex Rintz getting um, uh, getting his first podium. That's just uh, absolutely outstanding. Um, uh, you know, Joan Zarco coming very, very close to uh, getting his first race win. Um, it was just, it was a really, really enjoyable race as well. Yeah, it was. It was absolutely. Yeah, you touched on it there, Dave. I mean, um, Crutchlow just, uh, he knew he had the pace, basically. I think uh, he felt that he definitely could have challenged Marquez um, if Marquez had been in the, the, the sort of the fight in normal circumstances. Um, if not, he was clearly the second fastest rider that day. Um, and the only person that really could have touched that was probably Danny Pedrosa, who had obviously that, that really unfortunate fall in the first lap after um, a bit of uh, you know a bit of a run in with Johan Zarco. Um, but yeah, it was it was impressive how he controlled it, how he didn't play his cards too soon, how he sat behind the guys. He thought he had uh, the, the the front tire that he had chosen was too soft, and he had to spend a lot of the race uh, managing that. And um, yeah, it was uh, it was a fantastic battle. You know, Johan Zarco pushed them all the way. Um, and you know it's just it's great it's one of those I mean you know a couple of years ago we, we really couldn't have comprehended um, you know a season where three satellite riders are fighting for a race win uh, 
and uh, yeah. you know, and the factory bike that's there isn't even a factory Honda, a factory Yamaha, or a factory Ducati. Um, you know, so there was a real element of strangeness, uh, a kind of uniqueness to this, which uh, which made it stand out as well. Yeah, I mean, th- three years ago, there was there's no way that there, that there would have been anything other than a yeah, factory Yamaha or a factory Honda actually fighting for victory. Uh, uh, you know, Andrea Dovizioso got a couple of seconds um, in 2015, but that was uh, that was when he got lucky sort of thing yeah and i think that uh you know you can talk about like as you said david a few years ago when dobby got lucky and was able to fight and we'd have had that big change over the last few years and i think Cal's probably the best example of just how significant that change is because each of his grand prix victories have been so different one was he chose the right tire the next he was fast enough to win this one he was fast enough to win it with something in hand and it was just tactical you know and in the past, maybe we hadn't seen riders be able to do that kind of thing. They had to be, especially a satellite rider, they had to be completely 10 tenths for the whole race and override everything. This was a time where we were able to see a satellite rider ride with a little bit in hand and be able to pick up the win. And Cal, the whole way through the weekend, he was the second fastest man on track all week. And this was just, you could see the confidence flowing from him. Yeah, I mean, uh, I sort of wonder how much the, the the fact that he did say that his front tire was too soft but actually helped him in a way because it did mean it, it meant that he had to be patient he couldn't just go out like you know all out and uh and and, and try to from win from the front he said afterwards i think that he'd won this race as slowly as possible um and that's exactly the, the, you know when you don't have exactly the right the the right front tire then you have to do that it doesn't mean you have to be a bit more patient and wait to wait for, for your chances to come um i think you know to an extent this is down to Michelin. Michelin have done a. I mean, there's there's a lot to complain about Michelin. They they do still seem to have quality control issues, but by God, their tyres don't are producing interesting racing. Um, that's uh, it, it. Certainly made it an awful lot more entertaining. Right. Well, I think we need now need to go on to our winners and losers. Um, uh, we shall as our uh, as our man in in Buenos Aires. Uh, we shall start with you, Neil. <laughs> who's your First of all, who's your winner for the uh, uh, for for the weekend? Um, it's a tough question, Dave. I mean, there was quite impressive rides all the way down the top ten. You had uh, Tito Rabat scoring his best ever uh, his best ever finish in MotoGP after qualifying um, in the best position he's ever had in the top class. I mean, Hafi Siren, I think, to finish ninth was it was just that was a spectacular yeah, ride. Nice. You know, the, comfortably the best rookie, and to be up fighting with uh, you know kind of seasoned pros. Um, guys like Iannone, Petrucci. I mean, that was that was some going from Hafiz. Um I'm tempted also to say Davizioso because he had such a rotten weekend. Ducati, the factory Ducatis were, you know, just all at sea, stranded, nowhere, no dry weather pace at all, and to come away uh, gaining ten points on Mark Marquez. I mean, that surely is a you know a massive kind of uh, get out of jail free card that he has played there. Um, but I'm going to have to go with, uh, I think we're going to have to go with Crutchlow because he's the, you know, he's leading the world championship. He's the first independent rider, uh, to lead the MotoGP world championship since 2004. I went back and looked at the history books. Um, I think Sadie Chibernoy, uh, after the French Grand Prix in 2004, led the championship when he was with Christine Honda. Um, the first Brit to do so since 1979. And, uh, yeah, as we've just kind of recently mentioned, uh, it was the, the, the control, the, um, the patience. Um, and the knowledge that, that he had the speed, the kind of confidence in himself to, to not do anything stupid early on, um, and the precision with uh, the moves that he made. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, Crystal is going to have to be my winner for this weekend. That's that's a pretty good shout, uh, Neil, certainly. Um, hard to argue with that. So, Steve, go ahead and argue with that. Who's your winner for the weekend? Well, Neil's named pretty much the entire grid, so he's fairly fucked <laughs> us up there for being able to <laughs> say who the big winner is from the weekend. I think it's easy to look at it and say MotoGP in general is the big winner from this one because everyone's going to be talking about this. Between now and Coda, we're going to end up where every website gets a spike in their hits, every paper sells a little bit more, and there's going to be a few more people tune in to watch it in Coda. I think probably for me, though, the biggest winner from the weekend is probably Jack Miller because... Jack Miller was on a, he couldn't lose because he takes such a big gamble in qualifying. He looks super brave, unbelievable commitment, great lap. And then he ends up, regardless of what happens in the race, Jack could have crashed at turn one and he'd be the moral victor for the Argentine (laughs) Grand Prix. So he ends up in a situation where he's able to, basically, again, Jack had a fantastic weekend. You know, like he ended up, the pole was a great lap. It was just 
it was instinctive and it was just committed and it was just like he was going to make it work in the race. He ended up riding a really good race to finish fourth. You know, we don't we, we haven't seen the Pramac bike in that lead fight too often over the last few years. Jack was there for most of the race, you know, he ended up leading for half of it. So I think he's the man that probably came out from this one. And a weekend where a lot of people did uh you know, end up with a few detractors from the weekend. Jack ended up getting an awful lot more people on side just from his performance. So for me, he was the big winner. Yeah, I, I think that's a, uh, I think that's a very good, um, I think that's a good shout as well. Certainly, I mean, he's the, the, the his gamble in during qualifying to stick with slicks was just outstanding, and it was fantastic to see his bravery rewarded. Um, yeah, the that fact was that, super. The fact that Marquez, you know, actually said, "Look, this is far too risky for me to go out yeah. a, a drying track with." Uh, with slicks still sorry uh, a drying track but with still some substantially wet parts uh, with slicks for Marcus to pull out of that that shows you just how treacherous the conditions were so I think that really that magnifies just what a brilliant achievement that was from Jack to, to set pole position with, uh, with slicks yeah because I think there was like two corners where uh, where Miller was losing uh, something in the order of a second of a second and a half it's just that he was gaining two seconds through the uh, through the other the, through the rest of the track so yeah absolutely um, absolutely brave um, I am going to have to go for somewhere else but I mean I'm tempted to go for either Marco Batecchi in in Moto3 or Xavi Vierge in uh, in Moto2 because they both rode absolutely outstanding rides particularly Vierge Vierge looked like a MotoGP rider he looked absolutely outstanding on that uh, on that bike um, you can see how sick um, uh, Hervé Poncherel must, must be feeling knowing that he left Tech 3 and uh, didn't uh, uh, you know wasn't available to be put on the MotoGP bike because he definitely would have been been on the MotoGP bike after Jonas Folger pulled out but I think in the end I'm going to have to go for Alex Rince um, Alex Rince has been I mean, he's been sort of showing uh, that he's capable. He's been showing lots and lots of promise. Certainly, he turned around sort of because he had a pretty tough mi- uh, um, first half of last year. He turned it around. He looked strong through it during testing. He crashed out ju- at, at Qatar. Um, he finally gets on the uh, gets on the podium in Argentina. Um, obviously, the bike is in is in much much better shape than it was in previous years. Um, but yeah, I mean th- that uh, Alex Rince looked like he could win this race for uh, uh, for a little while. Um, didn't pull it off, but you, I mean you can see he's got his first podium. You can see that he's got his first win. Uh, th- that's coming sometime soon. Um, I really, really liked what uh, what Rince did. Yeah, I agree with that, David. And when you look at his teammates' performances in the first two races of the season, of the season I think it puts into perspective just how well Rince is riding. Um, Ian O'Neill, we know, is no sludge. Um, even if he has struggled and is still, you know, essentially struggling to to get that Suzuki um, to uh, you know to handle um, exactly as he would like. Um, but Ian only, you know, has a good track record in uh, in Argentina. I think he's had some good races before. Um, maybe if you take away the, you know, the, the taking out of his teammate in 2016. But um, for Rins to so comprehensively outperform in the first two races has been uh, has been noteworthy. And uh, you'd have to say Spanish press were reporting that he is on the verge of uh, announcing a, an extension of his uh, Suzuki contract to go through 2019 and 20. Um, you have to imagine that um, you know that that's that's very well deserved. Uh, yeah, and well, mentioning uh, uh, Ianoni is worth it because it also you also have to wonder how much the fact that there's so much talk about Jorge Lorenzo taking his place next year is uh, is affecting his um, uh, his attitude. And we know that Ianoni can sometimes um, ha- struggle with motivation, shall we say? Um, uh, he, so yeah, and to be to be complete, so completely uh, outperformed. Uh, by by Rince, it was. Uh, I mean, I really like what Rince did. Um, on to the next. Uh, the, the the next. Uh, we've had our uh, we've had our winners, and now for our losers. So Neil, who is the biggest loser from this weekend? Well, just because uh, of Steve's previous comments, I'll refrain from going through all the people that I'm thinking could uh, qualify for the losers. <laughs> um, but I'm going to have to go for Danny Pedrosa because uh, this was uh, another race that got away for Danny. Um, you know, another weekend during which he was quite strong. He probably had podium potential throughout. Um, he looked decent in the wet. He looked decent in the dry at some points. Um, and indeed, you know, he's been really strong through the preseason. He was, he performed a lot better than I expected in, in Qatar. And he's absolutely sure that he could have, 
he could have had a better result than I think seventh in Qatar. Uh, he said he had some really strange rear tire behaviour uh, towards the end of that race. But for him to even be up in that leading group fighting for, for the majority of the race, I thought was quite surprising. Um, I didn't expect to see him that strong. And yet, despite all that, he comes away uh, from the second round of the season with uh, with a broken wrist. And it looks like he is going to miss the third race of the season in Texas. And, you know, basically any hopes of the championship that, uh, that he may have had coming into this year um, have already pretty much dispersed. And uh, you just have to say that it's just terrible luck for Pedroza the kind of the story of his career in some respects just um, you know he doesn't bounce well and when he does have a a bit of a prang um, more often than not he tends to get you know beaten up and injured and uh, yeah this is just uh, really really unfortunate for him because it was it was not really any fault of his own and uh, it got barged wide at turn 13 by Johan Sarko in the first lap uh, it was pushed onto the, the the wet part of the track and I th- you know as soon as he tried to turn you know, the back end just came around and spat him off. So it was, uh, yeah, really, really unfortunate for Pedroza. Was Sarko's uh, pass in any way comparison to any where any of Marquez's um, uh, more brutal passes? Yeah, I think so. I mean, should he have got a penalty? Possibly. I mean, I was watching it again, and I mean, it does come from a long, long way back, and there wasn't really any space there. You know, I think it was quite comparable to the Rossi incident, really. Um, the only thing... Uh, the only mitigating circumstance for Johan is that once he did get onto the racing line by pushing Pedroza out, he did stay there on the racing line. Um, whereas Marquez, whenever he hit Rossi, you could see that he was just going way too fast, and he wasn't going to make the corner anyway. Um, you know, and he and, ended, and he, he really did. He, he really did hit me, uh, hit Rossi. Yeah, exactly. He did. He did. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think it was one of those one of those moves that had Zarco pulled another one race direction were probably closely monitoring him and, and, and ready to enforce a penalty if there was another type of move like that uh, but that move on its own well I mean you know if if, um, if the outside of the track isn't wet then Pedroza doesn't crash you know um, so yeah so I think it would have been maybe a little harsh to uh, to punish Johan for that Steve yeah well let's be real about it as well um, that Zarco did his on lap one and Mark did his on Rossi on I don't know lap 20 or something like that so you know Zarco's it's a very different set of circumstances because he hasn't gone through that corner at racing speed until that moment so that's also something that should be factored in whereas Mark had enough time to learn what the track was doing he made just some bad overtakes and that's why it's a bit different as well it's as Neil said it's unfortunate the way it all worked out for Pedroza but for me I think you know it's a bit like in the in the big winners it's easy to look at Marquez as being the big loser but for me probably the biggest loser from this weekend was Jorge Martin because he managed to get away with it and still pick up five points in Moto3 but his decision to come into the pits and change tyres was one that was always destined to fail it was never going to work out for him and he was lucky to be able to walk away from Argentina with a couple of points and at least salvage something but that was a race that he had you know that was a race to be won for him, and instead he ended up gifting it to his to his rivals. Oh, I think that's a uh, I think that's a very good point. I mean, uh, you know, we're talking about the Moto Three race here, and he um, uh, came in I think at the end of the warm up lap uh, to change wheels. But the trouble is, it just takes a lot longer to actually change wheels, and his team weren't prepared to do it either. That seemed to uh, really uh, really slow him down. Uh, it was an outstanding piece of riding by him, but as you say, Steve, he came away with a lot fewer points than he would have um, uh, that he would have had if it had just uh, uh, stuck with stuck with wets and try to run with the front group and do you David for me I think the biggest loser is Jorge Lorenzo um, because I mean he he had a just an absolutely terrible uh, absolutely terrible weekend um, sure he picks up one uh, one point in the end um, we saw him final actually running the wings he was the first uh, he was the first of the GP18s to actually go out um, on track with the winglets after they'd been they'd all basically given up on the uh, on the aerodynamic winglets on that uh, on that bike um, but these conditions in particular this sort of like half wet half dry is where Lorenzo is still struggling uh, after all these years, uh, he hasn't got any better of it. And it, 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 it once again just exposed that um, he has a very, very significant weakness and, and it's just not a weakness that can be remedied. I mean, on his day, when the track is either dry, fully dry or fully wet, then uh, he's incredibly quick. 
Um, but uh, in these conditions, you, you know, it's going to be very difficult for him to win a championship um, from now on because you, there will be days like this where the track conditions aren't suited to him and he's going to end up, you know, finishing outside of the top 10. Yeah, it was a, a pretty desperate weekend for Lorenzo in all aspects. You know, it wasn't just what happened on the track. Um, you know, he was... I think uh, there was one wet session where he was towards the front, but for the rest of the time, he was quite far back, um, you know, and just kind of the things that he was saying. I know there was that uh, that quote he gave to Movie Star TV, uh, which was definitely taken out of context in a big way. And, you know, it sounded like he was having a real go against his teammate, Andrea De Vizioso. Um I don't really think that, that was the, the intention. And, you know, if you listen to the whole interview, that really wasn't the, the, the gist of it. Um, but yeah. yeah, but Neil, Neil, Neil. Who listened to the whole interview? I mean, he, you know. <laughs> Why listen to a whole interview when you can just he, listen to a bite-sized 10-second clip, right? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, it could, because I think it was broadcast on Sunday and nobody's, we've all completely forgotten about the fact that he was supposed to give this big interview in which was uh, which was going to, you know, sort of slate his uh, slate his teammates. So it, it, in a way, he sort of he got away with that. Yeah. But I mean, you know, some of the other things that he's been saying just give the impression that he has come to the realisation that it's not working. And uh, he, he gave an, an interview to a French colleague of ours, Michel Turco, for the Keep newspaper, in which he said um, him trying to ride the Ducati is like getting Messi to play in the centre of defence or the centre of midfield. You know, it's just not something <laughs> that you can do. You're, you're basically negating all the strong points of that character, of that sportsman, by doing this. And when he's saying something like that, it's it's like he's made up his mind. It's like he's come to the realisation that this isn't going to work. Um, and I was speaking to someone that is, you know, that works really closely with Lorenzo who said that the reason why he's in such a foul mood and looks so frustrated all the time is just because he is putting he's training harder than ever he's studying more than ever uh, you know he's watching clips watching videos um, putting as much into it in, into the sport as he possibly ever has and he's still not getting that result he's still finding that it's not coming naturally to him. He's still having to think, okay, in this next corner, okay, so this is what I do. This is where I position myself. This is how much rear brake I need to use. And whenever you're still having to think about it in those terms over a race, that becomes absolutely exhausting rather than it just being something that's completely natural. Um, you know, he's but on when he was on the, the Yamaha for eight, nine years. I mean, you don't have to think about those these things. It's just like a, a thing of natural feel. But when you're having to continually tell yourself, there's only so long you can keep that up. And um, yeah, I would agree with you, David. It was a disastrous weekend for Lorenzo. And this is quickly becoming a disastrous season for him. Yeah, and I think it's probably worth noting as well, Neil, that Barcelona probably would have been just as well served putting Messi in at centre half this week against Roma. <laughs> so maybe Lorenzo needs to adapt as well. Like at the end of the day, he's got 15 million reasons a year to adapt. And if he can't find a solution... 12 and a half, 12 and a half. 12 and a half, sorry. With, with, with inflation, Dave, depending on how Brexit goes, that could all change. So, you know, a million quid isn't what it used to be. But he's got, you know, he, he's getting paid enough to be able to find a solution. If he can't find the solution, you know, yeah, Ducati are obviously going to go in a different direction. Everything we heard in Qatar when we were there, David, pointed to uh, Ducati making a change. Everything Neil heard from Argentina pointed to a change being made as well. So, you know, it's up to him to show that he warrants a good spot on the grid again, because at the end of the day, you're only as good as your last set of results. He's at eight, he's had a year last year where he struggled. It looks like this year is going to be the same. So he needs to find a bike that's going to be actually suitable for him. At the end of the day, everyone knows how good Lorenzo is, but it's very easy to get yourself on a downward pattern and not find the bikes that you need. Yeah, I mean, the, the question is, is he going to be pushed or is he going to jump? Um, uh, but in the end, it seems to me almost certain that he is not going to be on a UK next year. Uh, and I would be shocked if he wasn't on a uh, on a Suzuki. But um, uh, yeah, that certainly, certainly looks like it. Right, well, uh, I think that's uh, about does it all, chaps. Thank you very much indeed, Neil. You are off to Mexico City, I understand. Yes, a little bit of uh, vacationing between uh, here and Austin. So, uh, yes, fly out tonight. Should be good. Bright. Well, safe travels to you. <laughs> and you. Uh, we've got a big weekend of uh, World Superbikes coming up, haven't we, uh, um, Haven't we, Steve? Yeah, this is, probably the, this is probably the most important weekend we've had so far, just because this is the one that everyone said Aragon and Aston are going to be the true test of the new regulations. So hopefully this weekend we'll be able to see a continuation of the racing we've had so far this year. 
because we've had three different winners, seven different riders on the podium. I think 11 riders have already led a, ra- led a lap this year. So we've had a lot of changes already and uh, hopefully we can keep that momentum going this weekend. Right, first race is at noon on Saturday, I think. New European time, is that correct? Well, that's really asking me a different question, Dave. I don't have the timetable in front of me. I know that I'm on air from early on Saturday morning, 10.15, I think it is, right. European time. But uh, yeah, I think uh, usually one o'clock maybe for the Superbike oh, race yeah. on, on, yep, on, yep. on Saturday. So, but uh, everyone's going to be watching from a quarter past 10, obviously, Dave. Yeah, obviously, obviously. <laughs> yes, who would miss it? Right. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. And thank you very much, dear listeners, uh, for listening to this. If you are not following us on uh, the social medias, please make sure that you do. Uh, on Twitter, we are at Paddock Pass Pod. And on uh, Facebook, we are facebook.com slash Paddock Pass Podcast. Um, yeah, this section of the sure. podcast, David, was brought to you by Cambridge Analytica. And uh, all of your data is <laughs> lovely and safe with the Paddock past podcast Greg. <laughs> yes exactly yes yes uh, yes all of your data um uh, all your data are belong to cambridge cambridge analytica probably anyway but thank you very much for uh, for following us there anyway despite the fact that your uh, data is being um, used for nefarious purposes um <laughs> Thank you. Uh, also, if you do listen to us on some form of podcatching services, such as um, Apple Podcasts or whatever, uh, do make sure to rate us uh, or leave a review, as that helps lots of other people to find us, and uh, hopefully they will also get to enjoy our dulcet tones. Uh, thank you all very much, and goodbye. Well, it it keeps it it keeps it good and snappy. Sorry.